So obviously, want to talk about the new album, the live stream, some other, some of your other musical uh, pursuits over the years. You know, certainly, I wanted to, to grieve a little bit. Uh, I know we're both big hockey fans. You a Kings fan, me a Ducks fan. Are, are you feeling the Stanley Cup playoffs being this late for me? I'm at that point in, in the season where I'm normally switching. You know, my Angels suck, and so now I'm about the time where I get get into the Ducks and okay, who who are all four lines going to be and start gearing up for hockey, but we got no hockey coming. Well, um, my son plays hockey at a pretty high level. He plays, uh, this year he's going into Bantam, which is, uh, you know, when the checking starts. Um, so he's 13, and he played Pee Wee Double A last year. So he, he's a big-time hockey player, and, and we and we follow his career uh, very closely. It's a crazy world, youth hockey. Let me tell you, parents are insane. Okay, it's, <laughs> I've been 40 years in the music business, and the hockey youth world is more crazier than the music business, and I'm not not kidding about that. So because of that and because of his association, I've been following a little bit uh, of the playoffs, but not as much as I went in the past, especially if the Kings were there. But uh, I am pulling for the Islanders to upset the, the Lightning, and I see that Dallas is, uh, is, is past Vegas. I'm kind of glad Vegas is out simply because the Kings took, what, 42, 47 years, what was it, to, to win a cup. I don't want Vegas to win in their like, first three or four years. Right. So they got to yeah, earn it. Exactly. Um, yeah, other than that, you know, I'm trying to support pro sports on all levels. I'm a huge basketball fan, and, um, you know, I'm watching the NBA uh, playoffs. It's all, of course, it's all very weird with no fans in attendance, and now football is doing it. But, uh, you know, it still gives people some entertainment, gets us away from all the, the mania of the, the COVID, and hopefully you get to escape and, and, you know, get back into watching a game and, and there's TV. And we need it right now because, uh, you know, these are weird, strange, bizarre times. Yeah, big time. And, uh, you know, speaking of bizarre, I'll never understand why a dude like you born and raised in L.A. is a Celtics fan. But that's that's probably for another. I know. Well, what happened was, let me explain it. In the 70s, I was a I was a Laker fan of like Gil Goodrich and Jerry West and Will Chamberlain. Then I kind of got out of sports. I got really into um, into music. And then when I got back into the NBA finals, the logic is Magic Johnson. But for some reason, I like Larry Bird. And so I just kind of got into the Celtics because I like Bird. And that was it. It was as simple as that. And then I followed him. I'm not as avidly a Celtics fan as I used to be. Uh, quite frankly, I, sometimes I get a little disenchanted with pro sports in general. Not currently about what's going on, but morally, more about, um, you know, even the owners are idiots, you know. There's, there's not a loyalty. Like back in the day, the Dodger infield, you had like, you know, the Garvey, say, Lopes, Russell, I'm dating myself. Now we're talking the 70s here. But you know, that was an infield that stuck together for like eight years. The same four guys, I think it was. And, you know, you just don't see that in sports anymore. So it's kind of hard when people bop around and, you know, free agency, just people will play for a season for, for one year and then they're gone. And kind of like what Leonard did last year and then for Toronto. And kind of hard to feel a commitment and, and a loyalty to the team sometimes. But like I said, owners are just as obnoxious. So it's not like I'm siding with them by any means. So I could, I see why players are trying to get the most money as, as they can because they should, you know, but it just kind of creates this kind of complete non-loyalty and, and hey, as a guy who's been in the same band for the most part, for except for about eight years and, and been with the same band members since the, you know, the, the 80s and known them since I was eight, nine years old, uh, loyalty is important. Of course, I did quit the band for a while, so I guess some people, some people could question that. But um, uh, anyways, loyalty is important. Let's talk about the new album. And I'm sure you being a singer and, and a lyricist, you, you obviously got the uh, the title 
But did you have that Jimi Hendrix moment speaking it or singing the album title? Like, I know saying it on the radio, it sounds like punching this guy instead of punching the guy. <laughs> you're funny. That's, you're like the first person who said that, which, but, you know, of course it's been in my mind. Excuse me while I punch this guy and then, you know, punch this guy, of course. It's, it's actually more of a sports you know, metaphor, if you will, because when you're victorious in a game or, or a race or something, you know, you raise your arm and, and, and celebration and, and in victory. So I think that's the, 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 the direct kind of connotation, mainly the song, because it is the first lyric of the song, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. And it, because that's the first track, it's the first lyric of the album. But it's just a cool kind of uh, symbol of being victorious, of, of feeling like whatever you were trying to achieve was accomplished. And I think that's uh, something that a lot of people can relate to, especially if they're into sports and stuff. And, and that's probably was my mental state when I wrote it. And yes, it could be kind of misinterpreted if uh, if I don't pronounce it too well and uh, some of my diction with singing is is questionable as it is so but there it is punching the sky <laughs> but if you want to punch some guy you probably you might deserve it as well I said it on the radio and I was like oh my god I totally had that Jimi Hendrix moment so I had to, had right. to do that with it was curious if there was any sort of mission statement for this album or was it just to kind of build on on where things were with hand when hands down and just kind of keep upping the game, so to speak. I mean, certainly there's some crossover in the album title with uh, with Win Hands Down, kind of a statement of victory and Punching the Sky, a statement of victory. But what was the mission statement for this album? Uh, you know, I let the songs kind of dictate their own situation, really. And so, like, it's not like there's some kind of theme throughout the record at all. Um, every song is kind of its own trip and its, its own lyrical meaning and you know end of the attention span which was the first single certainly means something very differently i think that you always want to kind of progress you always want to keep taking steps i think the previous record should be a stepping stone to the next record and i think that's exactly what the scenario was here for for punching the sky in, in correlation with win hands down win hands down was a great record real proud of it i think we did some really cool adventurous things on it we wanted to continue with that and uh, we're in a mindset right now i think we're in a good groove even though you know the, the combination of those two records was probably about seven, eight years. Our groove is 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 not quickly happening, but it is. I do think that we're we're putting out some some strong material, albeit not fast. But I think that you know we just want to kind of keep expanding on our sound, uh, using different instruments, trying to say things that are relevant but make people kind of think lyrically. I like to kind of push buttons. I like poking fun. I like poking fun at myself. Certainly some social commentary. It's kind of impossible not to touch on some of that with what's happening in the last few years, but not really wanting to ostracize anybody or necessarily say, this is my stance, because sometimes I don't know what my stance is. It changes every single day. I mean, it's funny because sometimes the lyrics of a song takes on a new meaning a couple months later, hence the case was uh, standing on the shoulders of giants because we made the video and all of a sudden the video in correlation with the fires that was happening, yeah. it kind of took on a whole new meaning. It was weird. like, And then it made the song kind of take on a whole new meaning. It was a trip to even me and I wrote the lyrics. So I love that. I love how sometimes a song gets a new kind of kick by the time that it's, uh, by time that passes, if you will. Armored Saints become this really kind of diverse band. I think that we've always wanted to be that. Uh, but I think that we're just, we're we're really kind of hitting our stride right now with it when it comes to songs. You know, it, it kind of almost feels like that you guys are, are slowly kind of morphing into a little bit of a, a prog rock band with, with longer and longer <laughs> songs. But I'm kind of curious, is that is that like a combination of you guys kind of 
growing up and, and becoming more skilled musicians over the years or not caring about having that three-minute hooky song anymore? Well, the songs overall are actually shorter than they were in Wind Hands Down. I mean, Wind Hands Down had the two long songs, Muscle Memory and In an Instant, that were around eight minutes long or a little over. Um, and the only one that's over seven is Giants, but everything else is roughly around the four or five minute area. So we were conscious of that. We didn't want to have too too many long songs. Prog rock, which is funny. Well, you know, Joey does play in Faith Warning, so that, that probably rubs off a little bit. But I think we're more of a we're still more of a groove orientated orientated hard rock heavy metal band. I mean, the song requires just a hard hitting kind of guitar, two guitar, bass, drum attack. Should if it if it's a little bit more needing something that maybe encompasses some keyboards or other instruments and is a little longer and a little bit more moody with, with more arrangement than, than we're going with that too. I don't think that we ever want to get away too far from the fact that we're just kind of a bluesy, hard rock band at, at its core, but we want to just be able to build on that. You know, uh, speaking of, of different sounds and stuff, and I noticed, and maybe I'm just paying too much attention, but I noticed in the video for End of Attention Span, Bill using a flying V, which I hadn't seen before. Did he use that just for the video, or is that on the album, too, and mixing in some different sounds for this time around? Uh, yeah, I don't know what he played on the record, to be honest, because I wasn't present at that time during any of the guitars recordings, because it, I'd probably just be in the way, and nobody needs my extra two cents, and I believe in those guys, and Joey and Bill Matoyer, who actually recorded the guitars to get it all done. They certainly don't need my extra uh, opinion at that point, but he does have the V in the video, and the V always looks great. I mean, come on, Michael Shanker. You know, yeah. it's, it's just a great guitar, so it does look cool in the video. Hopefully he did use it on the record. I'm not exactly sure. One other thing I wanted to touch upon, uh, on the song, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, and we were talking about lyrics earlier, I love the lyric, Measure the Man, the Amount of His Grit. I love grit, and I feel like that's something that doesn't get uh, talked about or highlighted in this day and age. That's cool. I'm glad that you're you are paying attention and and you're saying those things. And whenever anybody is able to tell me about a lyric that's inspiring or or makes them think, I'm, I, it makes me happy because you know, I feel like that's my objective. But yeah, grit. I mean, we need it, right? You need to have grit. You need to be tough. You need to have a tough exterior. It's something I kind of try to instill in my kids, and I try to instill myself every day. You know, life is hard, so you better be you better be ready, and you got to have a lot of grit just to get through it. So it's a great word, and um, you know, anytime I could use different lyrics. It's really important for me to try to use different words, different lyrics. I hate repeating myself or saying something I've used before. I've done it. You know, it's kind of hard sometimes. I Sometimes I don't know to sit until the record's done. I'm like, damn, I used that lyric already. But it's hard. It's kind of like not using a, a, a riff that you that maybe sounds similar to an old riff or a riff from another band. You know, it's difficult when you're playing metal or hard rock because so much has been already done. So you don't want to repeat yourself and you don't want to repeat somebody else by any means either but it's sometimes it's hard not to especially when you're doing a chunk you know who hasn't done that let's uh let's talk a little bit about the uh live stream coming up at the world famous whiskey a go-go on october the 10th and i know you played there a bunch of times i saw you there a few years ago with uh metal church but do you remember the first time you played the whiskey that's a good question. I think the first time I was played the whiskey or myself was, I think, 1986. I believe it was Delirious Nomad Tour. It might not have been even in conjunction with the tour. It might have been a one-off. I think the early 
years of of Armored Saint playing club shows, like 82 to 84. I think the whiskey was actually closed for a period of time. So we oh, didn't wow. play it during that, during that club time. We played the Roxy, the Trube. Uh, obviously, uh, we even played Gazzari's, the country club out in the valley. But the whiskey, I think, was closed for about a two-year period. And that's why we didn't play it back in that day. And so it reopened. So that's why I think the earliest time we played it was in 86, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. How is this? Uh, how are you feeling about doing this live stream? Are, are you going in with any like uh, stage banter or dad jokes getting worked in it? Getting worked in? Is it just going to be like song <laughs> to song to song? Or what's the vibe going to be? My, like? Yeah, my little comedy routine that I try to instill every now and then. Um, well, it's going to probably be a little weird. I'm not going to deny it. You know, we're going to be playing in front of really basically nobody except for perhaps maybe some close friends and family and, and the crew people. But knowing that the cameras are inside the cameras are going to be lots of people hopefully watching, obviously. So it's going to be unusual. It's going to be a little bit like playing a rehearsal. It's going to be a little bit like doing a video and then at the same time a gig. You know, I, we're going to we're embracing it because this is what we got to do right now. The first thing you want to do when you make a new album is go out and play your songs live because you're excited about your material. So to not be able to do that is is weird and it sucks. And I'm sure I can speak for a lot of bands. They feel the same. And to not have any shows, is just, it's just, it's really bizarre. And it's, it's a drag. I want to go to shows, let alone play gigs. It's, it's really annoying that we have to do things like this. It's the only option we have. But, you know, that's what people are doing. And I think the fans of music are are embracing it and are happy they're getting something. And that's why we wanted to put our record out as well. The last thing we wanted to do is hold back and say, we'll put it out when there's touring opportunities because people need new music. They need to escape. They don't have shows. Why would we deprive them of new new music? We might as well put out a record and let people put on headphones, grab a beer and, and check out. We're going to embrace it. We're going to have a good time. We're going to play some deep tracks. We're going to uh, several new songs. So it's going to be fun. And then a little greatest hits, I uh, imagine, too. we got to play some of, the, some of the singles and, you know, put us on the top 40 charts. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, you, there's no way you can get out of there without, you know, Can You Deliver and March of the Saint and, you know. Yeah, well, we, we're, we're, we're probably not going to play a couple of classics, but, you know, we have to play some classics, obviously, which we want to, of course. You know, I don't, I don't know if we ever could do a show for the rest of our lives without playing Can You Deliver. I think that, you know, there might be complete uproar if we did that. Is there any reason why <laughs> March is always second in the set? Well, uh, you know, it, certain songs just always sound like a, a first song or a last song, you know. doesn't mean you have to do it. I mean, there's no rules, really, of course, when it comes to stuff like that. As a matter of fact, I like changing the set a lot because it keeps it fresh for us. And it's just, I, I hate delivering the same set all the time. Gonzo gets pissed at me because he's more of a consistent guy and I'm more like, let's play this song now and not in the set and who cares? And it kind of throws him for a loop sometimes. I don't want to be one of these bands that just play the same set every night. I get it if you're some arena band that, you know, everything is in conjunction with the set, the light, everybody's cues. But we're not. So why should we follow those kind of rules? And it's cool if you're if you're a fan of a band and maybe you sing a couple shows in a certain region, like Southern California or wherever Northern California, you go to a couple shows and then every set is a little bit different. I th- I think that's really cool, and I dig that when other bands do that. So you know you don't have to follow the rules per se with the certain songs, but you know songs like Words like of the Saint or even When Hands Down, these songs kind of sound either great at the beginning of the set or we're great at the end. Um, that's usually where they end up. You know, speaking of uh, local SoCal shows, the ones that I get to go to, and being an Armored Saint fan really kind of since La Raza, being a, being a younger guy, but kind of moving forward, 
I do have to say, and I think you would agree, that UFO show, particularly in the Grove of Anaheim, felt like electric that night for you guys. Were you guys a little more amped up that night playing for your idols? You know what? You're right. That was an amazing gig. It really was. The Grove is a cool venue. I've never played there before. Um, You know, sold out. UFO is obviously Phil Mogg is a singer that I emulated since I was a kid and and I'm a huge fan of them to this day. And I love UFO. They helped shape Armored Saint Sound, I think. And uh, to be able to do those shows that we did with them were amazing. And, you know, Anaheim, of course, is like a local gig for Armored Saint. So it was electric. I, I would completely agree with that. It was a great feeling. I think that was a great gig. People were super excited to see both bands. And I, I have very vivid memories of that show. Phil Mogg, just the coolest dude on the planet, right? Like, I was watching him up, up there on stage, and I was like, that's how I want to be when I'm 70. I'll never, of course, be as cool as Phil Mogg, but, like, cool just oozes out of that dude. He's awesome. I mean, UFO, believe it or not, I think is a kind of an underrated band. I think through the years, they, they gave a lot more to hard rock and heavy metal than, than really they get credit for. Um, obviously, you know, uh, Vinnie Moore is the guitar player, and he's amazing, but, you know, the, the, those early Shanker albums are the leads, and they're just, uh, they're just, they're just classic hard rock metal and uh, you know songs like Rock Bottom and Too Out to Handle Lights Out and Mother Mary these are just legendary rock songs like I said I think actually UFO is even better than the credit they probably uh, get in in the community of metal and hard rock I agree 100%, and I think we do need to wrap uh, Phil Mogg up in some bubble wrap with everyone passing away. I mean, R.I.P. Pete Way and, and Paul Chapman and Paul Raymond. It's, it's been, a, been a bad few uh, years with, with uh, members of that band passing away. I know it's a shame, you know. It's a, it's it's kind of a harsh reality of of the the age that a lot of people are, and you know some people age better. I mean, Phil looks pretty awesome, actually. Quite honestly, he's he looks fit. I think he was a boxer in his younger days, so maybe that helped him out a lot and set up his body a certain way. But uh, he looks great. Um, and he sounds great. Um, you know, it's a shame when people die. And it's, it's just frustrating, but that's, I guess, a part of life. And you always got the music, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. John, I appreciate all the time. A couple last things I got to hit you with, got to touch upon. We're one of those old school radio stations that still does mandatory Metallica. So I got to talk a little right. Metallica talk with you. Did you actually get to, to pick Four Horsemen when you got to sing with them at the 30th anniversary? And was that the first time you ever got to play with them? Um, I did pick it, I think, I when... They proposed the idea to me. I said, well, it's got to be something from Kill em All, obviously, because it was the early days when this was the talk about potentially being the singer in the band. It felt like it was. It, it had to be from that record. And Four Horsemen is, is obviously a very, very popular Metallica song, but it's just a little bit, say, not quite the song that says like Seek and Destroy is or, or even Whiplash. It's a little more to the right. So I thought it would be a cool song to do because it was just a little bit, I mean, again, very popular song of that record, but just not the obvious choice. Might have done some background shouts here and there back in the 80s when we toured together on the Ride the Lightning March of the same tour, but never, certainly never got on stage and, and took the mic over and, and sang lead vocal by any means. But, uh, you know, it was a great memory in my life. And it was really cool because Armour Saint got to open that show. And, you know, we're always honored to, to be on the same stage with Metallica. And, you know, they're, they're the kings, and what can you say? So it was, it was a great time. I, we just had a, that whole night was a, was a really magical night. Yeah, I mean, and it seemed like it, and it seemed like one of those uh, performances you would probably never forget. Certainly not. Certainly not. One, uh, one other thing I wanted to touch upon <clears throat> uh, with the little anthrax talk, 
and taken a little bit differently because uh, during your time in Anthrax, a lot was kind of made about Dimebag Daryl kind of being the uh, sixth member of the band and obviously he contributed <laughs> solos on Strap It On and Cadillac Rockbox, but I kind of wanted to learn from you your your time with Daryl. I mean, did you ever drink with him or party with him? What was your interaction <laughs> with Dimebag? Well, Dime was an awesome guy. You know, he was a jovial person. He was a, he was a, always a happy dude, always just a positive uh, spirit. You know, anytime he was in the room, it would light up. Certainly, he wouldn't let you escape the room without doing a, a black tooth if that was uh, present and usually was when he was there. Not only did I... I'm, I'm immortalized by being on recordings with him and those Anthrax records and songs you spoke of. But I played many shows opening for Pantera with the Anthrax. We did two, two tours kind of back-to-back in the end of 96 and then the beginning. I'm sorry, the end of 97 and also the beginning of 98. So we did two runs here in the U.S. opening. It was a great Southern Trend Kill record for them. And it was at the end of Stomp, so it wasn't really a new record at that point. But it was awesome. Just, you know, amazing memories every night. I mean, Pantera was one of those bands that just were just such a powerful force live. They inspired us. And I think when we went out there and we kicked major butt, it probably inspired them. Dime is, and you know, he's, he's missed every day. Matter of fact, I'm going to see Rita at a party later tonight. Again, the music lives on forever. It's a shame that him and Denny are both gone. Hopefully, they're they're jamming it up together. And like I said, I'm always honored that I am immortalized by being on recordings with him and great memories of just just really hanging out, creating mischief on tour, uh, being goofy, and and watching him play. And uh, he was just an amazing person. One last guy that we just lost recently. I thought maybe you had some interaction being on the L.A. scene pretty much your whole career. Any action with the late, great Frankie Benali? You know, we toured with Quiet Riot, our first tour. That was our first tour on the road, going out and opening up for Quiet Riot and Whitesnake. Quiet Riot was uh, the condition critical record in Whitesnake. It was like their first major release in America, you know, with um, Slide It In and uh, such great stuff, you know. Uh, it was amazing times. You know, Frankie battled super hard and he was certainly not given, uh, he was given a raw deal by getting this really horrible pancreatic cancer that he had and um, he fought it. Uh, super noble through year, for years and, and you know he, nobody needs to go out that way it's just terrible but I did see him not too long ago at um, the Ronnie Dio Gala that was like one of the last things that my wife and I did to go out and I think it was in February at the Palace what's it called now Avalon right. in Hollywood and um, and Frankie was there and he was talking and uh, gave like a little speech and he seemed just uh, very together it was obvious that he was still Fighting, but um, yeah, it's you know I have I had memories of that tour. Quite right, it gave us an opportunity to go out and open for them, and we were playing arenas. We played Market Square Arena in Indianapolis and Cobo Hall, Detroit, and I mean those are just amazing times. We were just brand new guys, brand new. The debut full-length record, March of the Saint, and we're on the road with Quiet Riot and Whitesnake playing these venues, and we were very lucky. We were very fortunate, so I always uh, treasure those memories, and uh, you know, I hope Frankie's uh, resting in peace now. Yeah, appreciate all the time, John. One last question to end kind of on a happier note. I don't want to be so sad, but I'm, I'm sure that you are a Nine Inch Nails fan. Sure. So... I got in this debate with my wife a few weeks ago, and now I'm kind of asking everyone I talk to, because every musician's a Nine Inch Nails fan to some degree. So the, the question is really this. It comes down to album number one, Pretty Hate Machine, versus album number two, The Downward Spiral. Your favorite and why? 
maybe the first album, even though it seemed like he kind of got more of a groove of what he did on the second album. But the impact of the the, the first album, I think, was I think that was when they went on the road uh, did Lollapalooza, right? The first was it the first Lollapalooza? Yeah, I believe it was. And you know, just the impact of Trent Reznor and kind of bringing this sound that was at that point there was certainly a theme for the industrial rock sound but you know he just <laughs> he just thrust it into the spotlight so i think that you got to give him major credit for that to kind of take on this whole new scene of a music uh, genre and and he just catapulted it especially with playing uh lollapalooza you know that was that was a big tour for them i think the rollins band was on that tour if i'm not mistaken and yeah you know, it was a it was a just an awesome time the 90s are great stuff there was some amazing bands in the 90s certainly all, all the groups from the seattle scene are incredible a lot of inspiration and they they kind of motivated a band like anthrax to kind of modernize our sound you know, those, and it's certainly on Sound of White Noise. And we were excited to be kind of part of that scene or to try to be part of it, you know, in an organic way and, and trying to make it anthrax grow. And we did, certainly with White Noise. A lot of people tell me they think that's kind of like a ahead of its time record. But I think that a lot of those bands, bands like Nice Now, Soundgarden, these are bands that had a lot of influence uh, on us and on me as an individual certainly as a singer Faith No More I mean there were some great artists that came out in that time and you know I mean you can't uh, the contributions made by Trent Reznor are pretty amazing so and you're so I'll go the first one I love it and I, I'm I'm I was surprised that you went album one but I get it I mean that's what my wife picked I'm on album two because I felt like album two it was a little bit more realized the dream was a little bit more realized and there was more soundscapes where the first album was kind of all one kind of Bane. You're right. You're right. You're right. Right. But it set it up, you know, and that's what a lot of records do is they, they, they set up the following record. And um, if you're lucky, your one record does set up the next record. And then, you know, if you're lucky enough, you continue to build on that if you're fortunate enough. So, um, and certainly I hear what you're saying, but that first record, it was the introduction and then he seemed to hone in on what he was trying to do a little better on the second album. And I do, I do agree with that. Yeah, just a fun little music debate to get into because we're all music fans ultimately. And then Trent got into later. He got into uh, soundtracks. You know, which yeah, was really cool. So Did he, yeah. I think he just won an, an Oscar. He's got like almost all of them. Like the E got like the Emmy, Oscar. I forget, but he's got like three of the four or something like that. He just needs a two. Yeah, super talented individual. Obviously, needless to say, I mean that goes without saying. Super, super talented. Well, John, I appreciate all the time. I can't wait to, to hear the entire Punch This Guy album. I mean, Punch This Guy album and uh, dig into that and see the live stream and everything. Dude, you rock. Thanks for checking out the entire podcast. Now do me a favor and subscribe to it. Radioactive Mike Z, available on all the major platforms. And while you're at it, follow me on Instagram at MikeZ967 and I'll follow you back, bro. Most importantly, don't miss the show, Wired in the Empire, reach Saturday night, 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on 96.7 KCAL Rocks.